Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Dead Planet Society this week. Uh, on this monumental occasion, uh, we are celebrating here on the Society. Uh, we got some really big news. Co-host Amy Therese, uh, tell the listeners today uh, what the news is in case they haven't heard so they can join in on the celebration. $150 billion, baby! $150 billion, We did it! We Woo-hoo. did it! We did it! Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO... The czar of uh, looking like you have a phallus on your instead of a head uh, is <laughs> is now a hundred fifty dollar fifty billionaire one hundred fifty billion. We're gonna have to make up makes new him words. the makes him the richest man in modern history. It's a hundred fifty billion dollars, which incidentally is the number of nappies used by Amazon warehouse workers in the last financial year. <laughs> You did it. That's right. Amazon. Everybody, this, this goes out to you, Amazon workers, pissing in your diapers, running around, getting heat stroke and like 110 degree uh, Fahrenheit, you know, uh, warehouses. That's like, what, 45 degrees Celsius. You did this. This goes out to you guys living in your vans in the parking lot outside of the Amazon warehouse. Speaking of that Big parking ups. lot, we should probably also Big give ups. a shout out to it. the paramedics who um, will often wait there on summer days just to capture yes. and assist yes. the... Shout out to at-will employment. Shout out to zero-hour contracts. To all the foreign governments in Europe who dismantled labor protections It's to make this moment happen like... Big ups to all of you guys. I mean, this is a really important milestone, I think, in human history, and we we did it. We did it, and and like, you know, it's been it's been a rough it's been a rough couple of years ever since Trump, you know, got into office, and you know, it's just it's like it's like a gaff after gaff after blunder, and like this just really raises the spirit and makes you feel like if we all come together and piss our pants and work ourselves to death enough, we can we can make Jeff Bezos the richest man in human history. It's uh, it's incredibly rewarding. So on Monday, which incidentally was Amazon's uh, sale day known as Prime Day, uh, around 1,800 Amazon workers went on strike in Spain and thousands more were set to strike on Tuesday in Germany. Um, and a statement from Amazon employees in Madrid reads, We in Madrid believe that only if we struggle together will we gain recognition for our demands. Mm. Similarly, only with a joint action at a European level will workers organise in those places where there is no union representation yet. Um, The workers have been striking in protest of a host of issues ranging from low-wage workers to piss-poor working conditions. And Bernie Sanders himself uh, popped onto Twitter yesterday to make his own statement in support of the workers, wherein he said, I stand with the Amazon workers fighting for decent working conditions and a living wage on Prime Day. While Jeff Bezos' wealth increased 
increases by $275 million a day, Amazon workers are afraid to take bathroom breaks at work and are grossly underpaid. And Bezos, being the piece of shit that he is, said earlier this year, uh, just a delightful piece of advice that he tries to tell young employees. And it sounds a little something like this. Listen up, folks. This is uh, some wise sage wisdom from uh, Bezos, uh, Lord Lord Bezos uh, himself. What, what did he say? What did the Lord himself say? The Lord himself said, I look like a pain. Uh, sorry, sorry. No, uh, he said, <laughs> this work-life harmony thing is what I try to teach young employees and actually senior oh. executives at Amazon too, but especially the people coming in. I get asked about work-life balance all the time. And my view is that's a debilitating phrase because it implies there's a strict trade-off. And the reality is, if I'm happy at home, I come into the office with tremendous energy, he said. And if I'm happy at work, I come home with tremendous energy. It actually is a circle. It's not a balance. And I think that's worth everybody paying attention to it. Listen up, listen up, Amazon uh, warehouse workers. When, when you when you when you finish up your fourteen hour shift with no bathrooms, I want you to waddle back to the the van, you know, the conversion van that you live out of back in in the parking lot of that warehouse. I want you to waddle back to that van in your piss soaked diaper. You have to waddle so as you know the pee doesn't leak out the edges, you know, and get on your shoes. Waddle back to your conversion van. Change yourself like an infant. And then, and to put a smile on your face and understand that work-life balance is a circle. If I may. It's a circle. You, you never want to be that guy. And we all have a co-worker who's that person who, as soon right. as they the come in. The negative Nancy's out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as they come into a meeting, they drain all the energy out of the room, Bezos added. You can just feel the energy go whoosh. You don't want to be that guy. Don't be a negative Nancy. And then you all these people crying about unions because, they, you know, they want to actually piss in a bathroom instead of a nappy. Like, or a bottle. You folks. Just let's be clear. There is some variety. They have options. Yeah. Just load up on those trucker bombs, you know, so you can toss them into the woods beside the conversion van that you live in outside of the Amazon warehouse. What is this fucking hell world that we're living in right now? All right. I have to break character. This is ridiculous. Uh, This this week's episode, uh, we didn't know it was going to coincide with this monumental occasion in human history, this this fucking monument to the neoliberal hell world of, of income inequality that we now live in right now. But it's 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 quite fortuitous. Joining us on Dead Pundit Society is Alex Gorovich. He is a an associate professor of political science at Brown University. He's written a number of good pieces on the right to strike. He's arguing for a socialist vision in the realm of political philosophy to ground the moral and liberties-based approach uh, to the right to strike. Amy, you're a bit of a political philosophy nerd yourself. (laughs) What do you you make of his approach and why is it so important just to kind of foreground the argument for the audience out there? Yeah, it's it's really clever. I think that sometimes it can be really hard to break out of the paradigm of speaking about rights in a strictly liberal sense because that's the world in which they exist at present and then sort of within that liberal paradigm 
sort of the extent of the critique you're able to make is something to the effect of like, you know, splitting rights into like negative and positive rights, like freedom from and freedom to. And so the natural way to sort of attempt to critique a liberal understanding of a right is to suggest that like a freedom from is not enough um, and that we need like substantive freedoms to do certain things. But I think Alex's critique is much more intelligent than that. Like it sort of takes for granted the fact that obviously rights need to be substantiated, but it also adds another element in that the right to strike as conceived of within a liberal paradigm is actually somewhat incoherent. Right, yeah, yeah. And so to my mind, it's really... It's really insightful in the way that it frames, like, the idea of a right to strike and what it is that we substantively believe, believe justifies that, right? Right. I don't want to foreground and give, give away the interview that's about to, that's about to come here for, <laughs> for the listeners out there. But, like, I think, like, one of the most important aspects that, you know, that, that comes out of this is that Gorovich is championing the idea that, like, socialists need to reclaim the you know these these uh, values these big picture values like freedom and even hell I'll even say it like a certain a certain notion of liberty right because the the way that these liberals and these particularly these like shitlord libertarians have claimed these uh, you know these phrases for themselves um, not only makes us vulnerable. Uh, to their attacks and their kind of like, uh, you know, smarmy, cynical smears about, you know, how socialists and labor unions, you know, infringe on people's individual liberties and all this other bullshit. It leaves us, you know, and thus leaves us completely like pants around our ankles when it comes to to arguing and debating with these people um, in, in, in the various, uh, you know, instances when we do so, when, when, when what we say could actually make a difference in terms of you know, branding our message to the broader masses of people out there who who don't listen to political podcasts for hours every single week. So yeah, it was a fun interview. I had a really good time, and we don't want to sit here and prefigure it for all of you for hours and hours on end. We got a solid hour and 15 minutes coming up on that. Uh, super pumped to bring you Alex. He's a really smart guy and a good friend of the show now. There's going to be a B-side that will follow this episode in a few short days. And uh, last week's A-side, it came out at the very beginning of this week, I should say. B-side. We're still getting back on schedule. We're still getting back on schedule. Last week's B-side with Ben... Uh, Benjamin Studebaker is just hot fire. It's amazing. Uh, we talked about his pieces uh, surrounding the notion that the left is not a church. We're getting a lot of really great responses from listeners and patrons alike about that particular episode. So if you want to get access to that B-side and this week's coming B-side and all of the rest of our back catalog, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Subscribe for $5 or more per month. Support the New Health Agenda. Get access to all the good shit. Come into the fold. You scratch ours. Come join us celebration. So yeah, f- <laughs> join the celebration, baby. Uh, anyway. All right. Without further ado, let's bring you that interview with Alex Gorovich. And uh, check out the B-side in the coming days. Become a patron and support the show. We got a really great guest this week. I'm excited to bring you listeners today, Alex Gorovich. Alex is an associate professor of political science at Brown. He is the author of a couple of books, most recently From Slavery to Cooperative Commonwealth, 
and he's working on another book, which is a a longer treatment of an article that appeared in Jacobin magazine this past week. That article is called A Radical Defense of the Right to Strike. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Oh, thanks for having me. So I came across your article. It's an adaptation of a longer piece that we'll link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, the heady, uh, you know, scholars out there with access to these paywalled journals will be able to read the longer piece uh, that appeared in the American Political Science Review. Uh, that piece is called a right, a right to Strike a Radical View. This is all about, you know, justifying in the realm of political philosophy, the right to strike. Uh, oftentimes, strikes, particularly in our contemporary context, have come and uh, sort of an, as illegal or kind of uh, quasi wildcat strikes. Tell us a little bit about recent the recent strike wave that we've seen. It's kind of fortuitous, I would presume, that you've started writing these articles much earlier. Uh, but tell us about the context and, and, and why you decided to write this piece and why it's important uh, in our political moment. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing about it, as you mentioned, is that I have been working on the right to strike for two, three years. Um, and it's only now that it's this work that I'd been doing sort of just in my academic activity has really fully started to seem like it makes contact with politics. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about these strikes, as I think a lot of people noticed, is that they were very large for strikes in the United States. They had very high participation rates. They were in red states, and they were all illegal or unlawful, at unlawful, least. I mean, right. We want, to, we want to tease out that distinction yeah. as we get uh, going through the distinction between an illegal strike versus yeah. an unlawful strike. Right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it might be a distinction without a difference. But the important thing is that potentially these strikes were um, by tens of thousands of people who were all collectively b- breaking the law. And that was actually true of a bunch of previous strikes as well. Um, The Chicago teacher strike, the Seattle teacher strike, um, and in some other cases, things like the Verizon strike, which I covered in 2016, which was a private sector strike. Uh, That was a strike that for the most part took place within the bounds by the law of the law. But even there, there were things that strikers were doing simply as part of the normal course of, of striking. That brought them very close to and sometimes past the law because American labor law is so punitive and restrictive that it's very difficult for strikers to go on strike with any reasonable chance of success without finding themselves afoul of the law. And this is something that I'd, that I'd known for a while, and it had kind of um, been the original reason for me getting interested in the right to strike, which is that there's this kind of puzzle that plays out you know, in all of the industrial countries, but very acutely in the United States, which is that in the 20th century, workers in every industrial democracy won the right to strike. It's really the first century in modern history when they, the formal liberal democratic states actually acknowledge that workers have a right to strike. In some countries, they won rights to organize and other rights of collective activity but never the right to strike until the the 20th century. And so this creates kind of a puzzle, which is um, you have all these states that formally recognize that workers have a right to strike, but then surround it with all kinds of limits and constraints. And in the United States, these are some of the most severe constraints of any of the, the, the kind of major industrial capitalist societies, but they're all pretty restrictive in their own ways. 
And so it sort of raised a question for me, which is um, not just at what cost did workers actually win the legal right to strike, but is it just an inherent feature of a liberal society that a really proper right to strike just can't be recognized because it raises, it gives workers just too much power, not in the moral sense, but just legally, to violate a whole bunch of other rights that liberal societies are committed to, like freedom of contract, the prerogatives of owners of capital, managerial authority, uh, uh, freedom of association, freedom of contract. So I originally started writing this because I was interested in um, what seemed to me a kind of contradiction uh, inside liberal democracies. And as I say, before the 20th century, this was an external contradiction. You had workers asserting their rights against these liberal societies that were squarely defending the rights of property owners. But now there's been this kind of weird internalization of this contradiction. And so what I want to do is sort of theoretically try, try, try and show that uh, basically there is a coherent liberal argument for the right to strike, but it places such extraordinary constraints on what workers can do that it can never really explain why workers have the right to strike in the first place. So all these liberal societies are committed on one, one hand to saying workers have a right to strike, but never fully acknowledging that it has to do with the profound injustices and oppression of a class-divided society. And so to try and kind of prize that open, um, to use that sort of internal point of pressure and prize it open and say, if we really think then about why workers have this right to strike, it puts them in much more open conflict with some of the basic principles of a liberal capitalist society. And that's then why we see all these strikes, like the teacher strikes of rising strikers, um, in conflict with the states that supposedly recognize the right to do this thing. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, it strikes me as a, it just struck me as you were speaking, that it's almost somewhat analogous to um, the nature of the right to, a, a woman's right to choose in the states as well. So it, just in terms of historical contingency, the way that was eventually won in Roe v. Wade was as a right to privacy. But in so doing, that meant that although there's a de jure right to choose, um, individual states can institute such a vast array of mechanisms that restrict the way that women can access that, that it becomes a right in, in name only almost, and then sort of like the root of that being a, a privacy right is part of why it can so easily be hollowed out. I don't know if that, yeah, it, it, it sort of makes me wonder whether it isn't something inherent to the way we conceive of these things within a liberal society that that then results in problems down the road when we attempt to vindicate those rights. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I, 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 I never thought about the analogy in quite that way, but what the what abortion rights bring up are really the same kinds of. I think you're right to say it brings up the same kinds of political and legal problems as the right to strike. And I would I would kind of distinguish between two things. One is, it's extremely important for us to know why we think people have a certain kind of right. Because once we know what justifies that right, it, it explains to us what kind of shape that right should have, what kind of interest it protects, and therefore yes. what kinds of things people should be free to do and not to do in the proper exercise of that right. Yeah. And that's true independent of just independently as for politics, you know. Um, and so I think you're right that uh, when, we, when abortion rights were won, 
as a, um, in the language of, I think it was really two things, privacy and equality, but primarily privacy, mm. then it was actually really, the really important justification was lost, which is it's about the f- women's freedom. Exactly. And about the kind of a, a control that people should have over their own bodies, own bodies in order to be equals in a democratic society. And when it becomes about privacy, it really loses that justification. And so the, the, then people start thinking, well, this is about privacy. It might be justified to limit that freedom yeah, in ways that yeah. wouldn't be justified if we understood it as, a, as the question of why people have to enjoy yeah. certain kinds of control over their body in a democratic society. Yeah, like we can quite easily satisfy a privacy right in ways that don't then allow women the freedom to choose. In much the same way as with labor, we can satisfy ideas like freedom of association or freedom of speech in ways that don't don't then allow us to have any substantive um, right to strike. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's kind of like the the moral political side of it to me. And then the second part of the the, the problem though is what it means to win a legal right and whether it mattered to defend it in one way or another. And I think that one's a harder question because I'm inclined to think no matter how workers won the right to strike, given the nature of American institutions, in particular the extraordinary class prejudice of the American Supreme Court, but also the only quasi-democratic character of our more democratic institutions – there was always going to be, without sustained political and social pressure, there was always going to be a, um, a kind of um, uh, limiting and constraining and adverse set of judicial rulings against that legal right. And in, and, and that's the one place. That's the one place where I think the analogy. I don't. I'm not totally sure about this, but I think the analogy with abortion rights might be a slight disanalogy, which is I think that if abortion, for instance, if the ERA had passed and it had passed as a constitutional right, abortion as a constitutional right that women Mm -hmm. ought to have as a matter of their equal rights in society as citizens, Mm -hmm. rather than as a privacy right they already had, Mm -hmm. then I think it would have been more secure and harder to constrain and limit. Yes, I only agree. I think that's only a re- I think that's only relatively true, not absolutely true. But in the case of 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 labor rights, even if labor's understanding of its labor rights had been one, for instance, as a way of interpreting the Thirteenth Amendment and the abolition of invol- slavery and involuntary servitude, the Supreme Court was so openly and immediately and nakedly hostile to workers' rights that it that that it really. Um, it really wouldn't have been likely that they would have seen a much better set of rulings over time. Um, And I think that's in part because really the way workers have managed to really properly exercise their labor rights has been in continual defiance of the law. I mean, many, or because they just exercise so much social and political power that employers didn't exercise their legal rights. I'll just give one example as illustration, which is that the Supreme Court ruled in 1937 that the 1935 Wagner Act was constitutional. And that was the act that actually said that workers have, as a matter of statutory law, rights to organize and strike and so on. But it wasn't until 37 that it 
the Supreme Court actually said that that was constitutional. It was open question. In two, within two years, the Supreme Court passed a set of rulings, one of which said that employers, while workers had a right to strike, employers had, in all but a few cases, the right to permanently replace those workers. This is a famous kind of problem in American labor law, which means although you're not allowed to fire workers for threatening to go on strike, you can permanently replace them. With sort scabs, of a distinction yeah, almost without yeah. yeah, with scabs. But for the most part, employers did not dare to use that power until the 70s, the mid-70s. So there's 40 years when they had a legal power that they didn't use. And that was primarily because workers were much more militant. There was higher unionization rates, just a much more regular practice of striking. And it wasn't really until the, cap, you know, the counter-offensive of the 70s by capital as a whole that was capped off by the famous replacement PACO strikers, that then this legal tool really became available politically. So um, the, my point is just that what, however you win a legal right, um, it's not always clear how much it matters, the language within you win it, because you need to always have the kind of social and political power to continuously fight and claim it against attempts to resist it. And that's, I think, would have been as true of, of abortion. I mean, I think the Equal Rights Amendment would have made a significant difference because it would have made a constitutional uh, uh, amendment out of it. But it would have been true about abortions. I mean, they would have found ways, state legislatures, um, if they were continuously right-wing Republican legislatures, of constraining and limiting it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as well. Uh, so there's no real substitute in the end for just continuous, sustained social and political um, uh, power. Right. So let's, I mean, this is really, this is really great. Uh, I wasn't anticipating that the conversation would immediately go in this direction. Yeah. But, uh, now that it has, let's, let's, uh, let's backtrack and let's, let's, let's do a little bit of what I like to call bottom feeding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're, we're we're catfish just uh, grazing on the bottom of the pond here, uh, you know, picking up the little the, the basic building blocks of the argument. Uh, so one, one of the ways that I've spelled this out in recent arguments that was very illustrative uh, to me when I came across this case is I, I've done uh, quite a bit of uh, study in uh, the history, legal, social, political context of uh, post-Civil War reconstruction yeah. uh, into the Gilded Age in the United States. And I want to spell out exactly what the stakes are here, because when we talk about rights, when we talk about uh, political principles and liberties, it's also it's it all it all seems very abstract, and it's rife for uh, as such, it's rife for right wing framings to sort of come in and contest uh, our principles and our notions and, and what we believe uh, to be true about our sort of moral and uh, political philosophical worldview. So let's spell this out historically and let's get real, real historical materialist about this. One of the, the really illustrative uh, cases I think coming out of Reconstruction is the way that uh, coverture laws were overturned. Mm. And one of the ways that these manifested in, well, these manifested a variety of ways, which is to say that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't so long ago in our history in the United States where women who, uh, who were married uh, or not, uh, could not inherit their, their late husband's property, for example. Yeah. They had no right to their own uh, wages. If they did work, which many women did work, many married women did work. They did piecework in the house. They you know sewed or whatever in the house. Or they, they did little odd jobs. They ran a store and they did work for their husband. Or maybe their husband was a drunk, as in many cases in the plantation south. And, and the wife was really the kind of the one who managed the, the financial and business affairs. Yeah. Um, well, that that woman had very little to no 
right to uh, the the wealth that she was responsible for. Uh, well, not producing in many cases, but appropriating. <laughs> uh, but in any case, you know, there was a series of laws that, that came about through Reconstruction and afterwards. Uh, and these are sort of legal reforms that are very crucial, uh, uh, crucial uh, advancements, if you will, or pyrrhic victories, if you will, to our notion of contract law. Yep. That women's rights, the very, very first wave of women's rights in the United States in particular – uh, were were pyrrhic victories insofar as they won the right to become uh, these sovereign individuals who had a right to uh, individually contract with other uh, economic entities, which then opens them up to uh, capitalist, you know, bourgeois property relationships, which is is really at the heart of of what we're talking about here. And in, in, in the the last one hundred to one hundred fifty years has seen. Uh, the contradictions entailed in this kind of uh, individual contractual capitalist labor property relationship unravel uh, due to, as you've rightly pointed out, uh, the kind of uh, political and social conditions and class domination uh, by the by the ruling class. So I've sort of I've sort of spewed a lot of stuff there, but sort of unpack that for a little bit and, and explain to our guests don't have a background uh, in, in this at all. Sorry, our listeners rather. Auditory guests. Yeah. Our, our auditory guests, the guests in, in, in the home of our podcast here. Explain the structure of what this kind of legal relationship looks like, because it's, it's very different than the kind of mental conceptions that we have about what rights ought to look like. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues here, and we can probably talk about this a little bit later, is when I say a right to strike, people sort of might immediately think that when we're talking about a right to strike, we're talking about one of the standard liberal or bourgeois rights uh, that, that you mentioned, which is rights that individuals have simply as individuals. So everyone should have a right of free speech, freedom of assembly, um, you know, polit- equal political rights, freedom of contract, whatever exactly we think those basic liberal rights are. They should have them simply as individuals. Um, individuals who are part of a political community or just individuals who are who are moral agents. And that's supposed to, the idea of these rights is supposed to secure, guarantee that everyone who's subject to a constitution that um, protects those rights enjoys the kinds of freedoms that they ought to have as equal members of a society. And this guarantees that they're not oppressed, that they're not subject to other people's will arbitrarily, or that they can't otherwise be sort of um, unequally subjected to the ends of other people. It's supposed to guarantee that everybody enjoys the conditions to pursue their conception of the good life. And in fact, and, and so that that idea of what rights ought to be doesn't seem to me to be wrong. What's wrong is the way of conceiving of how the actual rights that people enjoy actually operate. So, um, as you mentioned, it was a real victory for women to no longer simply be seen as extension of the, the will of their husband. It allowed them to become to enjoy some freedoms that they ought to have enjoyed as equal members of society. But for most people, their actual material conditions, whether as men or as women or, or uh, whatever, no matter what race they were, that meant 
that in fact they were still going to be subject to those people who had dominating authority or dominating power over them. And that was a feature of the way in which some of these basic rights protected that class power. So it looks like everybody's equally free if everybody enjoys a right to own property, if everybody enjoys freedom of contract, if everybody's free to get married and enjoy all of its benefits. But in a society in which most people don't own any property, uh, they don't own any property for reasons of historical injustice, uh, and because it's the normal way in which this, so this society is organized, then that means that those people who are nominally free to make contracts are also forced to make those contracts. They're forced into the labor market because so they have no other way. A coercive kind of uh, component, necessarily coercive component uh, yeah. to this notion of uh, liberty, this constrained notion of liberty that you've uh, just spelled out. Exactly. I mean, these individual rights don't, ex don't in fact, guarantee people the kinds of freedoms that they ought to enjoy because – the state coercively protects the property rights of owners. It coercively prevents people from stealing what they need in order to survive. It coercively prevents them from taking some land in order to live by their own efforts. And so what it does is, through the law, guarantee that most people have only one way of really earning a reasonable standard of living. And that is by going in the labor market and making these these labor contracts. The contracts are free. Nobody is forcing the typical individual to work for a specific employer. It's not like, you know, real chattel slavery. But because people have no reasonable alternative but to find a job that will pay them enough to meet their needs, they're forced into the labor market. And then when you're in the labor market, you whatever, you find some job, it turns out there's like a further feature, which is protecting the individual property rights of individual owners and their managers means that once you've made this contract, you're now subject to the arbitrary authority of your boss. And the boss can require that you do all kinds of crazy things that you cannot object to. Um, and that's supposed to be in the name of the freedom of the employer, right? It's protecting his freedom as an owner of property, right? That's what it means to be an owner of property. You get to do as you like with whatever you own. And if you choose to own, use the stuff that you own to employ people and then use that property so you see fit and then people make those contracts with you, it's all nominally about their freedom. They freely made the contract. All right, what's that saying? Somebody has a really great saying about the, that, that kind of freedom as uh, you know, for, a, for a rich man. Uh, We're all equally free man, means, to sleep under a bridge. Yes, yes, of? exactly. That's what it is. We uh, for a We're all equally man, free to sleep under freedom, but to sleep under. I think an so. That's a that's a good one about poverty. That's a great one about poverty. Which we're all equally free to sleep under the bridge, but obviously only the person who's too poor to own a house ends up doing it, right? But I actually think in this case, there's like another set of things we can say that capture what's weird about it. Is that it's true that we're free to make a contract. The law will not get, you know, the state will not get in your way and like arrest you for making a labor contract. And if you choose not to make one at all, it also won't arrest you for not having made the labor contract. It's just that they will arrest you for sleeping on the street or stealing the food or stealing the medicine. So, so it boils down to the same. Thing. Yeah. Engaging in any of the activities that would be consequent from you choosing not to sign a labor contract. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
you'll get arrested for doing all of the other activities that are alternatives to making the contract. So the, to me, the, the line that I like is there's that line from Capital where Marx says, for the period of time that the worker is free to make a contract, he is also forced to do so. Right. And that's like, that's kind of the first thing that's just, and that's dramatically wrong. It is wrong to unequally force people to go find whatever random job satisfying whatever random need in order to survive while there's other people who are not forced to work at all. And then it's even worse to then subject them to the arbitrary authority of managers once at work. And in the, in, in the, in the article, I cite all kinds of things that workers can be forced to do as a condition of their employment. Um, that um, it's just wrong for people to be subjected as a typical, you know, on the, in the typical case to that kind of authority that they can't contest. And so the point of this is to say, if the protection of things like freedom of contract and property rights produces a class divided society in which where some are forced to work for others, which was the result, which was really what the result of protecting all these liberal rights were by the end of the 19th century, as you, as you mentioned, Adam then these don't actually guarantee for people the kinds of freedoms that they ought to have. And so they do have a right to resist that kind of oppression. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look back and just not to be one, one last historical point that you're well aware of, I'm sure, as Robert Steinfeld has has written quite a bit on uh, overturning this idea that that you, you can find a little you can find a little bit of it in Marx, and you can certainly find it in uh, the, the liberal political economists like Adam Smith. Um, and others, this this notion that the early phases of capitalism was characterized by these masses of free labor who were able to dispose of their labor as they saw fit, you know, right. as, as it was readily of it, you know, as, as it was best utilized on the market and to their own personal advantage. And of course, the libertarians and these these uh, these these arch right wing ideologues that populate, you know, my university at George Mason and uh, and, and, and now you know the Supreme <laughs> Court and the White House. And, and all the rest of it, uh, they, they sort of champion this ideal of individual liberty. But Steinfeld and others go a long way to show that actually free labor as we know it uh, was, uh, was, a, was an exception throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. Yeah, that's an um, important point. Yeah. And I think, you know, just sort of like un- undoing that, that supposition that uh, the right to strike, that labor unions sort of overturned this early kind of uh, labor peace, this sort of utopian Garden of Eden scenario – um, is just is just silly. And prior to that, we had these uh, coerced uh, labor contracts where people were forced into to labor conditions uh, even more so than they are today uh, under the coercion of uh, the market and the threat of starvation. And so you're right to point out that you know resisting uh, these these kind of conditions as 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 we would resist any form of oppression would have been rightly accepted based on the the terms of labor in the 19th century and so sort of continuing that tradition into the present it's not a it's not a break with this utopian capitalist past it's a continuation of fighting the oppression of conditions of work and coercion uh, that, that have been carried forward since the beginning of capitalism itself yeah uh, so there's actually a couple interesting things to say about that i mean since we're talking about sort of these ideals of free labor so the the first book i wrote was about basically this idea of free labor and how people interpreted it after the Civil War in particular. And one thing I point out is that people took it so seriously on the left that they thought, look, we really 
do deserve to be free laborers, which is why we should abolish wage labor and replace it with workers' cooperatives, because that's the only condition under, we, under which we can say that nobody is just subject to the arbitrary authority of someone else. Everybody would be equally forced to work insofar as there's stuff that needs to be done. We recognize there's stuff that needs to be done, but everybody would be equally required to go to work. And when they go to work and work in a cooperative, they will be equal managers of the enterprise rather than subject to some arbitrary authority of the boss. But notably, this the seriousness with which they took the idea of freedom led them not to defend wage labor because they recognized wage labor, even if it could have been perfectly realized, even if it wasn't as it was in the way that Steinfeld and all them have, have discussed, even if it wasn't you know, uh, the bonded labor of women or tenant farming or s people working for script instead of money or peonage or any of these things, even if it was just you can make a contract for whoever, still would have been coerced, unequally coerced labor on the basis of class differences because you still would have been forced to work if you were a propertyless worker. So replacing it with producers' competence was the only way of realizing free labor. And, and the reason I mention it is not just to point out how seriously they took it, but one of my motivations for writing that book was to remind us of something that I think the left has sort of forgotten, which is that there's no reason why the idea of freedom should be seen as a right-wing idea. You, you kind of mentioned this at, at, at the beginning, but I think the reason people take some of this language of kind of, of, of freedom and independence and even rights to be right-wing is in part because the left just stopped talking about it. Um, but it's actually been historically a language for talking about, uh, for making, I think, some of the deepest criticisms of what's wrong with a capitalist society. And they organized on that basis. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I was just going to say, I quite enjoy arguing with libertarians online, not for the purpose of changing their view, but more to sort of um, exhibit some of the arguments that should be made against their talking points. And the thing that I find like the most consistent and the most fascinating is this, this idea that libertarian, like a right-wing libertarian ideology seems to have like a, a rhetorical monopoly on the idea of freedom. Um, and yet the thing that I keep reminding these libertarians of is that the freedom within that discourse is a totally hollowed out shell yeah. yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I think, you know, if you take freedom seriously, there's all kinds of ways in which you can show that people are not, in fact, free. And they're <laughs> not free in the way libertarians say they're free. And they're not free in the way that people ought to be free. And that you can quite kind of easily show this. You can show that it is that most people are not free to do anything but get a job and any job they can happen to find producing for any conceivable need. Uh, most many things that aren't really needs and therefore aren't things we should force people to 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 work to satisfy and that the real way of guaranteeing people the freedoms they ought to enjoy is under some form of socialism and i do think that that's to me that's the best argument for socialism is an argument for freedom and i think that the left should reclaim it and i think that the reason that you know that that also the libertarian arguments are often not very good the reason they stand is simply because people they're never good they don't argue with it but it yeah it takes time yeah. to unpack 
that nonsense. Yeah. So it's, but the moment that you do, it falls apart. And sometimes it can seem very plotting. I have one of the other articles that I, I wrote a while ago it was called Liberty and Its Economies. And I did it, and it was just to say, look, let's just take the standard liberal theory of freedom. As a couple Marxist scholars had already shown, even if we just take it on its own terms, liberal uh, capitalist institutions do not guarantee people the freedoms that they ought to enjoy. In fact, it consistently denies them the freedom to do what they ought to be free to do. And it's actually not that. I mean, it takes some painstaking, boring analysis sometimes, or it's sort of stodgy, you know, analytic, you know, kind of uh, logic chopping. But you <laughs> can favorite. show it. And it can be very powerful politically to say, look, actually, we say, for instance, that people have equal political rights, that they enjoy the right to vote. But if you make it impossible for them to get to a booth um, without being fired for trying to get there, then they're not free to do it. Sorry, they're not. They are free formally to do it, but they're not able to exercise that right freely because nobody thinks that you enjoy the proper kind of freedom from interference in exercising your right to vote if, in order to exercise it, you might lose your job. Like, that's mm. clearly not right. Or if you can't get to the voting booth except by paying um, for uh, a bus fare, but you're too poor to both pay for transportation, pay your rent, and pay for food, then you're not free to do all the things you ought to be free to do, namely meet your basic needs and go vote. And these are all things that you can say that are about freedom. And it's, you can actually open up a whole world about what's wrong with poverty and with class oppression and show how it's deeply about freedom. And I think it's the best way of pointing to the ways in which a, you know, a, a liberal capitalist society cannot satisfy the demand for human freedom. It's interesting because I think in certain domains, people are far more receptive to those arguments than others. I wonder whether sort of capitalizing on certain arenas where that argument is more persuasive can be kind of a an in for socialists to um, yeah. begin to convince people. So I, I just think of last year when the Trump, uh, the Republicans were attempting to repeal Obamacare and the fact that, you know, 27,000 people would have lost uh, 27 million people would have lost their health care, made it immediately apparent that these ideas about, well, you'll have freedom to choose, right. it was laid bare how vacuous that notion was in that context. So. Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, the Obamacare is a good one. I mean, in a couple of ways. One is we know that the minute it came online, even as crappy as Obamacare won, it made available healthcare to people who didn't have it, and they all dropped out of the labor market, which made it really clear that there were some people who were who were working only so that they could acquire health care. So it's clear yeah, that if you... Tied to their employer for that reason. Yeah, so yeah. if you... One argument for universal health care is to guarantee people a freedom they ought to enjoy without having to work, which is you should be free to, uh, to have access to a reasonable standard of health care 
without having to work, and that frees you from dependence on bosses. That's one really important thing. The freedom to choose language is also bullshit, because in <laughs> fact, what it forces you, it, what it forces you to do is spend hours trying to choose between utterly obscure plans that nobody can understand, but where the chances will be that the choices all of which suck anyway, um, will have huge consequences for you. Whereas if you give people universal health care as a matter of national health insurance, it frees them, it frees all of that time to go and do other things that are of great value to them. <laughs> That's also a really huge benefit. Like organizing their lanyard collection. <laughs> so th this, is, this is really great i'm enjoying the hell out of this and we could probably talk about this for hours but let, let's get back let's get back in the interest of letting you alex uh, go on uh, with the rest of your day yeah um amy and i have nothing else better to do we, we actually podcast in our sleep these days so that's, <laughs> a, that's a real problem uh Let's get back to the the real meat of the argument because we've really laid out the the in in, in great detail historically, theoretically, and otherwise, uh, in great detail the problems and the contradictions um, and the the real the real like almost like a hypocrisy you might say of the liberal model, the liberal notions of contract law, freedom, liberty, and all of these other sort of uh, hobby horses and, and kind of you know things that you hear bandied about by your, you know, your racist uncle over Thanksgiving dinner or what have yep. you. Um, <laughs> we're all too familiar with these types of tropes, uh, but, but we've really, sp you know, spelled out and, and, and given people, I think the resources to undermine them uh, and, and think through them in, in, in a really profound way. But your piece seeks to outline a radical and dare we might say, I think would say socialist notion of the right to strike. And, in, and you, you, you lay out very early on to say it's this kind of a, there's a paradox at the heart of this article, which is although illegal strikes really go to the heart of the American experience, there is strikingly little political philosophy to, to talk about what this means, right? And so what you're trying to do is you lay out the, the case for, for three different kinds of, of views. The first one is, of course, the liberal view, which we've been talking around quite a bit. The second is a more social democratic view, which I think is one that's a little bit more uh, that might that some of our listeners might find surprising uh, yep. in terms of what the contradictions are entailed in that social democratic view. Uh, this is, of course, not a social democratic podcast. It's a socialist one. And the best way to make that distinction, I think, is to, to lay out the differences between the social democratic right to strike versus the more radical socialist right to strike that you're trying to sort of uh, spell out, I think, in the literature for the, for, the, for the very first time. So let's start there. What is the social democratic right to strike? And on what basis uh, does it fail and sort of undermine and contradicts it, contradict itself uh, similarly to the way that the liberal uh, model does? Good. So, so yeah, th yeah. Thanks for sort of bringing the focus in. So, so there's the on the liberal view, the argument is workers have a right to strike because they already enjoy basic liberal rights. They can quit a job if they want to. They can associate together with others and they can collectively quit and they can just refuse to to work. And that's how the liberal, that's the liberal understanding of the right to strike. And the way, what that means, though, is that when workers exercise this kind of right to strike, they're constrained by the requirement to respect other individuals' rights, which means they cannot in any way kind of coercively interfere with others when they exercise the same rights. 
So that means that a bunch of workers can quit, but they can't try and prevent other workers from taking their jobs or managers replacing them or so on. So it's a way of thinking about the right to strike that, cons- that, that surrounds it with enormous number of constraints and most importantly doesn't link the right to strike to any recognition that there actually are um, quite ex- systematic forms of oppression in the standard capitalist economy. Now, the social democratic argument is different, and it's importantly different because it begins from a recognition that um, capitalist labor markets can be, that's I think on the social democratic view, can be unjust. And on the social democratic view, there's a way to make a capitalist society just so long as you give everybody a basic set of welfare rights and a set of labor rights. The welfare rights are sort of your typical welfare state rights, you know, free public education, social benefits, uh, universal health care. Sort of you can imagine that set of rights. But importantly, on the, the view that I say is social democratic, there also has to be labor rights, which are rights to organize that include a right to strike. And that's because on the social democratic view... When you have a single worker trying to bargain, there's basically inequalities of bargaining power. And the function of labor rights on this social democratic view is to make the bargaining power between workers and employers roughly equal so that we can consider those labor contracts as fair. And so what's important about the social democratic view is it does think that these labor rights, including the right to strike, are necessary in order to eliminate a potential injustice of labor markets. So that makes it different and I think superior to the liberal argument. But to my mind, there's something, there's two things that are, one thing that's very problematic about the social democratic view and one thing that's potentially problematic. The very problematic thing about the social democratic view is that it has too narrow a conception of what is oppressive about capitalist societies. Because The way I read it is that the social democratic view does not think that the very existence of class differences, and in particular, a particular kind of class difference, is not inherently wrong. Namely, it involves no critique of the problem of there being a monopoly of ownership over the means of production by a class of private owners, and therefore has no problem with the fact that some are unequally forced to work while others are not forced to work. So that's that kind of first, just the kind of structural inequality and domination of a capitalist society is not in itself um, solved by kind of the social democratic institutions. And secondly, it doesn't involve a direct critique of the relations of authority and power within the workplace. It tends to think that those can be solved simply by sort of peak bargaining associations among labor unions and whatever contracts unions happen to secure. So it has no real argument for who should be allowed to control the daily activity of people who are anyhow forced into the labor market in the first place. And so for me, the social democratic, the primary problem of social democracy is that the social democratic view has too narrow a view of the kind of oppression and wrong of capitalist labor markets. It thinks these can be kind of solved by ameliorative management 
of class relationships rather than by eliminating the kind of most fundamental forms of unfreedom in a capitalist society, which are this fact that some are forced to work for others, while others are not similarly forced to work at whatever job happens to be available. And secondly, that um, relations that relations within the workplace are just assumed to be hierarchical. They might be kind of limited by union grievance procedures and so on, but fundamentally they're hierarchical. Right. In, in the last instance, the boss has the say. Over a large, yeah, over a large number of things. And there's certainly ways to limit and kind of ameliorate these. You can have workers' councils that have some input on investment decisions. You can have grievance procedures. You can have very good unions. I mean, unions are still very important ways of limiting the authority of bosses. So they're often much better than nothing. But fundamentally, the problem is who should control how decisions are made nationally and in the workplace. And at both levels, it's still fundamentally a question of private owners of capital having the power um, to, to, to make these decisions. And I think that's, um, I think that's wrong. And it speaks to the limits of the social democratic view. And what that means is that while social democrats are often willing to countenance sometimes illegal and disruptive strikes in societies where labor rights are not properly protected, the, the scope of the strikes that the social democratic position is willing to defend is much narrower. It doesn't, for instance, have a, a kind of direct theory about why control strikes, which are strikes over control over the workplace, are justified because it doesn't have a direct theory about what's wrong with the hierarchical relationships of the, cap of the typical capitalist workplace. And it also means that strikes that are about trying to control investment or nationalize industries or otherwise create sort of, you know, cooperative control, forms of democratic control of the economy are also often outside the formal purview of the social democratic view. So that's why I prefer the, the socialist view. Right. So let's back, but just to clarify that for folks, because it seems there's a structural sort of um, historical component there as well in terms of the way that these these relationships are structured in the capitalist state. At the heart of it, that in order for the, the social democratic model to, to function, as you mentioned, there have to be uh, corporatist arrangements at, at, the, That's at, right. at the level of the state, right? Which is to say various cert, certain kind of relationships between the state. Uh, as, as a mediator between uh, capital and labor represented by these large, uh, you know, large trade union federations. And in, in the European context, these trade union federations in, in France and the Nordic uh, countries in particular are, are national um, and, and they represent the entire sector in most cases, um, although that has been, uh, you know, uh, eroded uh, along with many other uh, social democratic, uh, you know, advances, you might say. So the corporatist model is really the pinnacle of the social democratic uh, framework, which is, I mean, I think we need to understand that. And it's also, it's also the origin of the contradictions and the pitfalls and the limitations thereof. Right. And I think we really need to understand that in the United States, because a lot of times I'm seeing a lot of reforms and a lot of political efforts sort of slandered as, you know, merely social democratic in a way that I think belies the kind of material um, the material demands of a truly social democratic uh, uh, configurations, which is this uh, nationally uh, or national level organized corporatist structure. Right. right. Uh, no, I think that's important because 
often what people don't like about social democracies are some of its better features, its more socialist features, which are in-kind universal provision of benefits that aren't conditional on people working. <laughs> yeah. But that's like the good stuff. Mm-hmm. The bad stuff, though, which is what makes it really social democratic is, as you say, on the one hand, workers having these labor rights. And on the other hand, worker organization being highly managed by the state through formal state institutions. These sort of, as you say, corporatist arrangements where you have, you know, most or almost everybody in a union are covered by union contracts. These union contracts are negotiated at peak levels managed through the state. And notably, um, as a as a kind of trade-off for the existence of these uh, corporatist arrangements, workers are actually required to sacrifice a great deal of their independence. So, for instance, in Sweden, for the duration that workers are covered by a union contract that has been negotiated by their union, they are under a series of legal obligations, one of which is they're under the obligation to obey their boss within the terms of the contract. And the second is, I think it's called the obedience obligation. It has some long Swedish name that I can't pronounce. And the second one is, um, uh, or maybe that's, that's called the duty of loyalty. The second is duty of obedience. Well, whatever they are in English. The second one is agreement not to strike. So the legal required not to strike. Um, as a consequence for enjoying these sort of state-managed prerogatives to engage in um, these um, union contracts with their employers. So they actually have to give up their right to strike for the period that they're covered. Um, uh, So they lose quite a bit of independence. And the the point of these institutions is to manage class relations. And as a consequence, to give the appearance that people can enjoy all the kind of freedom they ought to enjoy within this kind of framework for buying social peace. And it's, it's not hard to see why it buys social peace. Uh, I certainly, you know, you can enjoy, many people can enjoy quite reasonable standards of living. Um, you have your own representatives who can often kind of uh, limit the authority of bosses to, to uh, damage your interests. But at the end of the day, it still doesn't buy people the kinds of freedom they ought to enjoy in a properly democratically managed socialist uh, uh, economy. So that's why I prefer the radical right is that I think what the socialist view does is properly identify the full range of oppression that people experience in virtue of their being class divided capitalist societies, that this is an oppression that goes on the one hand to the structural side, that, that you have people are highly unequally forced to work um, into forms of employment that nobody should be forced into that there are relations of authority in the workplace that just should not exist. Uh, and that this is that those are therefore legitimate objects of resistance by workers when they go on strike. I mean, just to give you an example so people can kind of make this concrete. When I covered the Verizon strike in 2016, um, I interviewed some Verizon workers. And one of the things that a number of them brought up were these really punitive disciplinary proceedings um, at Verizon. And it went that when they're outside trying to like hang, you know, a Fios, you know, connect a Fios cable to a house and they're, it's a hundred degrees outside and they want to go buy a, a thing of water. If they texted their boss and asked, they had to text the boss and ask permission to go get water or go to the bathroom. And if they didn't get that permission, then they would be, um, uh, they would get an official kind of censure. And those censures would add up to lost hours of work and lost pay. 
And, and employers generally get to decide what disciplinary proceedings are going to be and what the consequences of, of, of disobedience are. So, and there's all kinds of other examples. People can be forced uh, to not take, uh, you know, to only take certain bathroom breaks, like one every four hours, or forced to pee in a cup as a condition of their employment, and whatever. There's sort of endless examples of these things. But the point is that that kind of authority in a workplace is stuff that can be legitimately contested by a strike. And it was actually one of the things that the Verizon Rikers strikers struck over. It wasn't just pay and benefits, but was to get rid of this disciplinary proceeding, and they won. Uh, and I think that stuff comes more easily into view when you adopt the kind of socialist concern for freedom and see strikes as a way of trying to win back some of these freedoms that people ought to enjoy. I think this is where we see the contrast between social, the social democratic right to strike and the socialist, more radical view of the right to strike, which you're in many ways sort of inaugurating here in the literature and, and, and in, a, in a really important way, I think. The difference there is is uh, you see the intersection of political economy with with political philosophy. Yeah, and I think you know someone who um, we may disagree with in other contexts uh, talks about this in a in a really important way. A guy who I've had on my show and a friend of the show and a really smart guy, but Matt Bruinick. Matt Bruinig sort of characterizes the nationalized industries of of uh, Sweden and Norway in particular, um, and Denmark as, as sort of these necessary components of sort of surviving in a, in a, in an imperialist capitalist global economy. They're, they're essentially, they operate as, as ways of organizing a national economic sector to remain competitive. They, they operate as, as, as almost kind of quasi capital controls. You know, I mean, if you nationalize the airline uh, industry in Norway uh, and you make it a state-run enterprise. Well, they, they can't they can't uh, you know leave uh, and, and and move their operations to the United States. And so the, these so so the social democratic model not only relies on these kind of corporatist uh, arrangements that you find in Europe, but they're also direct manifestations and, and in many cases direct responses to global capitalist competition, which is why. I raise this point because I balk at the criticism or the concern that we in the United States have similar kinds of constraints on us as, say, Norway does, as such a relatively small player in the global economy. If there was anywhere in the, in the world, in, in world history, where this socialist view for the right to strike that you're talking about uh, could have... Uh, you know, as much purchase. I mean, it's the United States right now as the global hegemon, as the dictator in many senses of global economic policy. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't constraints placed on the, the global uh, superpower. There are. But that's still to say we have a tremendous amount of flexibility in our uh, political economic arrangements that can then sort of give us the ability to uh, interpret these rights in a far more radical and robust sense. I mean, so that's interesting. I mean, the way I would kind of put it is one reason that I have been working on this is that I kind of wanted to recover a kind of thinking that was completely natural in the American working class between like 1870 and 1970. I mean, the people, you know this, I know that many of the listeners will know this, but America has, the United States has one of the most radical labor histories of any industrial country. It has one of the most violent as well. Yeah, but I mean, it's I say the most decades. Too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had decades and decades of massive, massive 
hugely civilly disobedient um, strikes. It had general strikes in 1877, St. Louis, uh, the workers just completely took over St. Louis and ran the whole city in Seattle in 1919, mm -hmm. you know, Minnesota in 1934, but also, it, you know, in certain strike wave periods, you had a million workers just completely shutting down whole sectors of the economy and engaging in, in massive amounts of law breaking and facing down huge state repression. Uh, I think during the strike wave of 1947, American strikers accounted for one in four, uh, one out of every four, or sorry, one quarter of all of the man hours lost to labor unrest in the entire globe as it was recorded. I mean, you know, what That's we have right. recorded. And much of that was in steel, like steel in particular. Steel, was, was and I mean, so shut there, down, yeah, no, there was extraordinary militancy. Mm. And this was a kind of natural way of thinking already. So part of this is just an exercise in putting in sort of more formal theoretical terms, a way of thinking that is not at all foreign to the United States and doesn't require any esoteric theories at all. It just requires using ordinary language, things that, that, that we already know, um, uh, thinking more philosophically about practices workers engaged in for, for, for decades, and they used to write about it too. I mean, we have all kinds of writings. There's all kinds of theories of, of strike as, a, as an activity. Um, and the other reason is that, you know, insofar as we think that there's a kind of some beginnings of a resurgence of left politics and a little bit more labor militancy, you know, we're going to need arguments to do to explain and defend workers when they do this. I mean, they're just going to do it, but they also, you know, they have arguments among themselves. Anyone who's been at a strike or part of a strike knows that some workers are going to say, no, I don't even have a right to do this. It's illegal. Some are going to say, um, well, but what about, uh, you know, their property rights? Some are going to say, I don't know if I should be do this. There's also going to be huge public debates and it's kind of important to recover how, the, the kinds of arguments that people make in favor of this activity, the history of it, to know that it's been a regular feature of American politics and it was the prevailing feature of American politics uh, for more than a century. Uh, and that, um, uh, and it's perfectly consistent with normal ways of thinking about sort of freedom and, and, and justice. As for, you know, America's position in the global political economy, I mean, at some point, the activity does have to be international. But I think we've just seen there's just a huge amount of, there's just a huge amount of possibility in a strike. And while at some point, it's the question of who controls investment and capital and property has to be faced squarely. I think there's just a first sort of question of how you build the collective power to impose a democratic will in the economy in the first place. And strikes are just one of the best ways that they're one of the, the few ways of building a kind of mass political consciousness uh, and awareness of the potentiality of collective action. And I'll just say, I actually think that's the one other, just to tie this into one little point that we started this podcast with, I think it's the other kind of interesting difference between abortion rights and, and labor rights, which is for the most part, women can exercise abortion right individually. What the privacy language kind of captured was an individual woman can go and exercise her right to abortion. And that makes it relatively less threatening. It's still threatening to 
all attempts to subordinate women to men and try and control their bodies for the purposes of social reproduction, but it makes it relatively less threatening than collective action. I mean, this is why the right to strike is such, it's, it's disruptive collective action. And it's the experience of engaging in successful and effective collective action by thousands of people that I think is, you know, kind of the, the, the most central experience to kind of theorize and, and recapture in any attempt to really dramatically change society. Yeah, I think it's also incredibly important being armed with the the intellectual um, uh, arsenal, um, particularly in a moment where the institutionalization of collective bargaining and the the frameworks for labor rights um, that were formalized sort of in the New Deal are starting to well, it's at least starting to become apparent to most people, particularly in the wake of Janice, that the institutionalized version of these rights is not one that's going to be available for them to have their rights vindicated for long. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's a whole other thing to say about Janice. I mean, there's just a whole backstory. You know, Janice is a political victory for Republicans insofar as, you know, they recognize that their political fortunes rest on the most undemocratic branches of government, you know, Supreme (laughs) Court, Electoral College, the Senate, and in defeating the kind of organized bases of democratic votes. But mm-hmm. in terms of labor relations, and so, you know, public sector unions are a big part of the story, especially in key Midwestern states and Northeast and stuff. But, but in terms of labor rights, I mean, they're kind of pulling on a thread that actually kind of potentially opens up um, a lot of possibilities because the the kind of labor accord that has been unwinding for kind of 30 years since the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point, it's just clear that you, workers cannot get even close to what they want out of exactly. respecting and affirming the normal labor laws and labor institutions. And yeah. that once you see that workers can get, or, you know, teachers can get what they want through just mass collective action, there's just less and less reason to even bother defending these labor laws. Um, I mean, the real, like one of the interesting historical twists of the Janus decision, I actually sat down and read it. It's really a crazy, it's a crazy decision. Yeah, Yeah, it is amazing. But there's two things in it that are kind of interesting. So one thing is this, um, that, you know, it's all about free speech, but they do a kind of really evil bit of trolling which is they cite a very famous case, Thornhill v. Alabama, which was the 1940 case in which picketing was understood for a time, even sort of mass picketing for a time, to be legal because it was seen as a form of free speech. And what they're doing is noting that originally the way some labor rights were recognized, including striking, was as a form of free speech. And the way we got this kind of free speech fundamentalism was originally as a way of trying to explain why workers had these rights. But over time, in the hands of the courts, the First Amendment became the weapon for attacking the labor rights of workers in the name of the free speech of employers and corporations. Actually, a phenomenal book called The Taming of Free Speech by Laura Weinrib, which just shows how originally workers tried to fight and win their rights through the First Amendment during the New Deal. They thought that was going to be the way we're going to do it. How over time it became just this new way of attacking their freedoms and reinventing all kinds of prerogatives for capital. Yeah. 
Um, and then the other was they said, well, look, we, you know, Jan, uh, I forget who wrote the majority opinion, but um, said, look, Janice. I think it was a, a later. Yeah, I think it was Alito. Right. So as Alito says, look, also, labor peace does not require that we respect these rights anymore. Yeah. It's just not required for labor peace. And in a way, he's right. One of the purposes of these labor rights was to buy labor peace. And now that that isn't required anymore, uh, why should we bother recognizing their, their rights? And what they're basically saying is, without totally realizing it is, you know, it's just back to the picket line. You just can't expect to get anything you want except through mass picketing large-scale strikes it's like it's like zombie scalia is uh, inviting us back to this to the strike line you know? yeah I mean, no it's, totally it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic it's too good to be true well this has been really great we talked a little bit about janice i was hoping amy that you'd open up that conversation there's a lot more to be said about that in fact <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, this is this is really great we actually i have confirmation i don't have a date yet but i have confirmation that we're going to hear from i think uh, uh, at least an acquaintance or colleague of all of ours uh, jedediah purdy Oh, great. Who, who has written, uh, sorry, who has recently uh, written a, a socialist uh, case for the First Amendment or a, a First Amendment uh, for, for socialist, uh, you know, expression or, or something along those lines. It's a really great academic article. And uh, this, this really intersects really great, I think, with, with the discussion that we're having right now. Fantastic. Uh, which is just to say that there's so much more to say here, and we'd love to have you on for another three hours, but we, but we need to let you go uh, and, and get on with the rest of your day. But uh, we will link to all of these articles to the listeners out there in the show notes. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the piece that came out here in the American Political Science Review is behind a paywall. Uh, we'll try to get that out to, to people and uh, you know, shoot me a DM or something like that uh, on Twitter or Patreon uh, or the Facebook page, uh, listeners out there. And uh, I'll try to get you a copy of that uh, as, as the copyrights enable us. I'm also happy to help people find a way to copy of that if, um, if they contact me and are interested in reading that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because it, uh, unlike the Jacobin piece, it lays out the more critical perspective. The Jacobin was more sort of a popular adaptation, which was a really great thing that they they made that available. But the uh, the longer piece uh, lays out the case against the social democratic right to strike and and, and better elaborates, uh, I think, our our criticisms of the liberal one. But. Uh, but yeah, Alex, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Dead Punnett Society. We really enjoyed this, and uh, we'd like to have you back on soon. Uh, this this article is forms the foundation for a book that you're working on, on the larger history and political philosophy of the right to strike. And uh, Lord knows that this is a very hot topic right now, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. And uh, thanks for coming on the Dead Punnett Society. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> And that concludes this week's interview with the great Alex Gorovich. Thanks again, Alex, for joining us. We will link to the relevant articles in the show notes uh, from him. As he mentioned, reach out to him or to us if you are stuck behind a paywall and can't get that right to strike piece that came out from the American Political Science Review. Um, yeah, we're happy to try to bring that to you and, and break all the copyright laws in the process. <laughs> Only half kidding. Uh, yeah, anyway. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, mm -hmm. and if you've yet to join the Patreon, sign up at patreon.com slash deadpundits. That's right. Dead Pundits, out. out. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Oh.